You know, I'm a sports fan for sure, and, and a baseball fan specifically, and, and one of my favorite things about being a baseball fan, especially in this era if you're a Padre fan, is to watch uh, the call-ups that happen for young prospects who finally get called up to the big league team. And the reason I enjoy it so much is because it's not just that I recognize for that player that it's a lifetime of work leading up to a moment where he finally gets his shot with the big league club. It's not just that the player is who comes to mind. I love that it ends up focusing the story, the narrative always includes his family, where you follow along with members of the family who are present and you get to watch their expressions and you get to kind of view the experience through their eyes because a cameraman inevitably will always find where the new young prospect's family is seated in the stands and constantly they're showing their expressions as they're hanging on every moment because it's a journey together that they have. It's always a super fun thing. And if you're a Padre fan right now, it's a lot of fun because they have so many young prospects who have just been called up and the team's actually good right now, which it's time to jump on the bandwagon if you're not already there. But there's a guy a week and a half ago who's kind of one of those situations. He was... He was a guy who finally was going to be given his first shot at the big league team. He'd spent 10 years in the minors, though. This was not some hot, young, 20-year-old prospect that everybody was anticipating. This was a fill-in for another pitching injury. His name was Daniel, Daniel Camarena. And some of you probably saw what happened, but for those who didn't, I just want to share with you real quick the story because it was pretty amazing. He finally gets his crack after 10 years in the minor leagues. It's not a glamorous scene to pitch in minor league baseball, but he finally gets his crack at being a big league ball player. And on his first day that he's called up, the team is losing eight to nothing by the third inning. And so they put him into pitch and they tell him, we're going to have you throw until you can't throw anymore because we don't want to waste any more arms. We don't want to burn through any more pitching, which is not a very glamorous way to like, hey, here's your first shot. We stink today. And so please go just... It was bad enough that the broadcast team actually made a statement at one point that if the Padres come back and win this game, I'll walk from my home in Alpine to the stadium, which is quite a walk. And you know that because you live here in San Diego. But by the time the guy entered the game, uh, the game was far gone, but he pitched really well. And so he was able to stay in the game. In fact, he was pitching so well and the game was still blown way out that they decided let's just leave him in even when his part in the lineup came to bat where he literally had to borrow batting gloves and a bat from someone else because he was so ill-prepared for the idea of hitting. He just comes in and throws an inning and that's it. But now they push him up to the plate and he comes to bat with the bases loaded. Max Scherzer, a four-time Cy Young winner, is pitching against him. He's one of the best pitchers in baseball. He goes down 0-2 in the counts and then fouls a pitch off, takes a pitch, and then smacks the next pitch over the right field wall for a grand slam. Or if you're a Padre fan, you know what we've renamed it. It's a Slam Diego. Uh, the, guy, the guy who hits the ball keeps a straight face the whole time. Doesn't even crack a smile. The story became so popular, though, because it was an amazing moment for this guy, but because they showed his family and his mom is jumping up and down. He had several cousins who were present, but he had an older brother who was there who initially is holding a phone trying to record his brother's at-bat, knowing it's not looking good. But when he realizes that the ball just kept traveling until it made it over the wall, he starts jumping up and down, he's screaming and shouting, and then he crumbles to his knees, overcome with emotion. The moment was so, so sweet. And by the next day, the, the footage that ran was more highlighting the reaction of that guy's family than it was even highlighting what he did on the field because of what a sweet moment it created for all of them together collectively to celebrate that they could celebrate someone in the family who finally did it. And you know how this works. The family of every writer frames their first published article. The family of every musician, or at least they used to do this, they would go out and buy the album uh, for the neighborhood because they wanted to celebrate together. Every business owner takes the, the first bill, the first bill of sale, the first dollar they make in a transaction, and they typically frame it behind the counter. It's not just a family, even for a community. We're rolling into the Olympics, and every Olympian who comes from a hometown, maybe even like a community like Poway, there's going to be a sign next to that 
that community sign as you enter into the community. And it's going to not just say the name of the town, but it's going to say hometown of, and then it'll say the name of the Olympian, because the whole community wants to celebrate that one of us has finally made it. It's the reason why the community here has renamed the 56 Freeway Ted Williams Parkway, because we're proud of the fact that he was a San Diego kid. It's why the the local arena would fill out with locals who'd want to see the the local band finally on their first big tour. We get the idea of of a family and a community wanting to celebrate a big moment like this in someone's life. Now, what we look at today is a big moment like that in the life of Jesus. And and we're going to look at a village that we would have assumed as Jesus entered, would have welcomed him with a hero's welcome, that that the storyline would have been as much about, well, yeah, I mean, here's what Jesus did while he was there, but even more about, and look how excited and and thrilled and, and full of emotion everyone else was. But unfortunately, this is really the only time that I can think of in Scripture where Jesus is going to find himself very, very alone, really without a single ally in sight. Just a few chapters ago, Jesus would drive demons out of a demon-possessed man and into pigs. And it says the whole village gathered and told him, we don't want you here anymore. But you remember there was at least one guy. The guy sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, who's now been healed and freed by Jesus. He sat there wanting to be with Jesus. At least he had the one in that community. But in this community, there's not even a mention of one. This time's different in that... Everyone will seemingly turn on Jesus and no one will stand by him. And the shocking thing is that it's not because they knew so little about him or had such limited exposure to him. The opposite is true. They reject Jesus completely because they believe that they already knew him in totality. They already knew him thoroughly. And because they were so familiar with him, they were quick to be dismissive of him. You see, in Mark's gospel so far, he's, he's made it clear in his biography of the life of Jesus that Jesus is out doing a new thing, and the new thing he's doing is he's establishing a new kingdom. And everywhere he goes, he and his kingdom message is breaking ground and taking new territory and seemingly applauded until he goes home. When Jesus goes home to Nazareth, the whole storyline seems to shift. You remember, he's born in Bethlehem. But his family didn't stay there long. They flee to Egypt and spend three years there before coming back to a community called Nazareth. And that's where he'll spend the remainder of his life up until the age of 30, where he'll launch out into his public ministry. He'd grow up there in Nazareth, learning the family business, working with his father. And then he has younger brothers that are going to be mentioned in our story, working as a carpenter. Now, the Greek word that's translated carpenter is a really broad term. It means to be a craftsman with either stone or with wood. And if you've ever been to Nazareth, it's a rocky hillside with terraces built into the hillside that would have allowed for ancient homes to sit there. So it's very possible because of just the geography there that what Jesus did was less woodwork and more stonework. And what he did would not have been so glamorous. It would have been building humble retaining walls throughout that community. Along that hillside, a very humble job, a humble trade that Jesus would fill. It's interesting even, uh, not in my notes, but a free tidbit for you. Historians tell us that in this same time frame, remember Herod the Great, after he dies, he divides his territory, or his territory is divided. One of his sons, Antipas, who Jesus will later stand in front of on trial, he had a palace that was being built in this region. And that historians tell us that they hired masons from Nazareth and the surrounding communities to work to, uh, to level things out and to build that, that fortress little city that was there some miles away from Nazareth. So it's very possible that what Jesus grew up doing was building retaining walls there and then building a palace for an empire that he would, in a sense, overthrow, not with a sword, though, but with love and humility. That, that, that moment even begins to create a picture of what Jesus would do and the kind of person that he was that he'd serve with such humility. You see, Jesus is about to have, though, a homecoming where the local boy, the carpenter's son, he's really made a name for himself, and he's finally put their humble village on the map. And you remember how humble a village it was because people's reaction to Jesus being from Nazareth was recorded for us in the Gospels, where they'd say, Jesus of Nazareth, and you remember a guy by the name of Nathaniel responds and says, can anything good come from Nazareth? This simple little humble village, it's 25 miles 
southwest of the Sea of Galilee, away from Capernaum, where he seems to set up his ministry headquarters. It's nothing more than a simple village. It's by no means a city that you should be picturing. It was spread out on less than 60 acres. Now, acres don't mean much to me, and if they don't to you, then football fields might. It was about the area of 15 football fields that would be pieced together that housed the residents that historian referenced to be in between a population of 150 and 200 people. This is a small town, small enough that everyone knew absolutely everyone and probably knew too much about everyone even. You can still go to Nazareth today, and one of the things they have that's rather charming and very cool is they have a remake of what Nazareth looked like in the first century that you can walk through and explore to get the visual. So here you find that the carpenter's boy who lived in obscurity, remember he leaves the family trade, he leaves the village, he's baptized publicly in this prolific moment where where the heavens open and, and the spirit of God descends upon him like a dove and a booming voice is heard, this is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus disappears for a month. Remember, he goes off and he's tempted. And when he reemerges, he's a man on a mission. He's telling people the kingdom of God has arrived. He's calling people to leave everything and to follow him as his disciples. He's acting like He's a well-educated, officially trained rabbi, when in reality, his background and expertise and training was really just in dirt, wood, and rocks, and building maybe retaining walls. But we're confident that although Jesus has left and is out far away, we're confident that his reputation is echoed all the way back to his hometown before he himself even arrived back home again. Because you remember earlier in Mark 3, There's that moment in time where Jesus' own family, his mom and brothers, come seeking to pull him away from the crowd. It says they want to put him away quietly because they think that maybe it's possible he's just out of his mind because it's such a shift that's taken place in his life. You see, this is the story of Jesus' highly anticipated homecoming. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Then he went out from there and came to his own country. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joses, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at Jesus. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record a story of Jesus going back to his hometown of Nazareth. And there's a debate, you should know, between whether or not they're all talking about the same event or, or maybe they're talking about two different visits, visits to that hometown and to the synagogue specifically in Nazareth. Now, I think it doesn't matter. It's not worth much to you, but I'd say you should look it up yourself and make your own decision. Mark 6 Uh, Matthew 13, Luke 4, the passages, I seem to think, or more my conviction is that this is speaking about the same uh, time that Jesus goes home just one time, and I think it went so poorly that he doesn't return there. And so I think they're describing the same thing with Matthew and Mark giving basically a mere image of count, but Luke gives a lot more detail. Matthew and Mark seem less concerned about even what Jesus taught in the synagogue, What they're focusing on instead is the simple fact that Jesus was rejected by his own. But if you flip to Luke 4, Luke gives us a little bit of extra information. So go to the right. We'll read Luke 4, and then we're going to talk through the story together. Luke 
You remember, Jesus left Nazareth just as a simple blue-collar individual, but now he's returning as a respected rabbi with a bit of an entourage. Remember, a crowd was following him. He has 12 disciples that in the next story, he's going to rename them apostles that he sends out with authority. And, And there's a larger group of 70 disciples that are typically with him. I mean, he might show up and 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 basically add an extra 50 percent to the population just by him and his team showing up. And, And Nazareth was not known as a place that bragged about all the celebrities that emerged from there. It was an obscure place. And so you'd assume that when Jesus returned home, now as this charismatic and famous teacher, that initially he'd be greeted warmly. And it seems that that's the case because he's even treated with some respect because the the village is about to give him their lectern at their Sabbath gathering. And you should know that any male who was in their right mind was allowed to have a turn leading a synagogue gathering in a local village where there'd be a time of prayer and of reading from, from the law and the prophets. And then a sermon would be given on the passage that was read. And what a treat for the village to all of a sudden have these locals to have the now famous Rabbi Jesus return there to teach them. And so we assume that they're waiting with bated breath on the edge of their seat. Verse 16, Luke 4. So when Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, quoting Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then Jesus closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. This is typically the posture the rabbi would take when he's going to start his his message. And the eyes of all were fixed on him. And he began to say to, to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, when we unpack this and just think about what's happening, Jesus begins to quote from Isaiah 61. It's this prophetic passage that if you've never read before, take the time this week to read it because it's writing about the restoration of Israel and really the restoration of all of creation. And initially the prophet is talking about this great day of the Lord and he's talking in a detached manner about what God will do. But then you'll notice if you read it, he even shifts really into first person mode where he's then seeming to promise, the prophet seems to promise, that he will be the one to bring the deliverance. And you start to realize it's a prophecy about Messiah who would come to rescue his people, to rescue Israel and to rescue all of creation. And so what Jesus does is it says here in a simple sentence that he sits there and says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He began to teach that. So he opens up for them then, I am the one who's been the promised deliverer. I'm the one coming to bring about reconciliation and restoration of all things. And they put their foot down and reject him. In fact, Jesus will then respond. If you look at verse 25, he's going to respond there by giving the example of two different Gentiles that God provided for when the Jews were rejecting his, his work and his prophets. And the implication by using those two examples is Jesus is looking at them and saying, you are rejecting God and rebelling against him, which leaves you worse off than the Gentiles that you look down on. And now they get so incensed, so angry that they decide in this mob moment that they're going to throw him off a cliff, which was typically the customary treatment of a heretic and a blasphemer. Now, there is a Mount Precipice, they call it, in Nazareth you can go to, which is a high enough ledge that they take you to and say, we think maybe they brought him here. But there's another way to think of this, and that's that typically historians tell us what they do with heretics and blasphemers is they would tie them so that they couldn't defend themselves, basically. They couldn't break their own fall. They'd tie them so that their body was stiff, and they would push them off like a four-foot ledge to where they'd land and knock the back of their head on a stone. And if they lived and woke up post-concussion and not too much brain trauma and swelling and stuff, if they lived to tell the tale, then it was their way of saying, maybe you aren't a blasphemer. So the test for Jesus is, we're going to push you back. As you may guess, historians don't reference very many people living through that. But is they're going to either push him off a high cliff or a ledge like that, is there, is there in this mob moment going to do it, somehow Jesus escapes from the crowd and from the scene. Okay, now flip back, Mark 6. 
Whether two separate events or the same event, there's some irony in the moment. When you think about the fact that Jesus offends the culture that was most familiar with him. It's not, again, remember, it's not because of lack of knowledge or exposure to Jesus. It's because they really believed that they already knew Jesus, that they became so incensed and so offended with Jesus. I mean, what was the problem? The problem is that they really thought that they already knew him. There's nothing like that feeling. I hate that feeling. When you meet someone for this first time, and when you introduce yourself, they look at you and they go, oh, I know who you are, or I've heard about you. And maybe for some people, that, that strokes your ego. For the rest of us, that ignites a sense of insecurity and anxiety. We're like, oh gosh, what did you hear? This probably is not very good. We know that sometimes our reputation precedes us. And when that happens, that people begin to shape an opinion about us that oftentimes is not very fair. And what it shows us is that sometimes the greatest hindrance to knowing someone can actually be believing that you already do know them where you don't ever get the chance to really get to know them. It's you hearing about someone from a third party, and when you listen to that gossip, you begin to formulate opinions about them, and once you meet them, they might spend months or even years trying to undo the opinions that someone else planted in your mind about them. And the hindrance for you really knowing who they actually are is you have convinced yourself that you already do know them. And that's how they are right now. They thought that they knew Jesus. This was his hometown. He's a familiar face. But apparently they only really knew about him. They never really truly knew him. Oh, the local handyman, an old neighbor. He played Little League with my kids growing up. He's, he's just another Nazarene, a commoner. In fact, uh, some commentators are quick to point out that builders didn't have a lot of prestige. They were not high on the ladder of status. They were considered considered to be just menial laborers. And so someone like that in an honor and shame culture all of a sudden takes a highly prestigious role as an authority over the people and they balk at it. The response was, hang on, we know this guy. He's just the local handyman. In fact, they then make the comment, we know who he is. He's that son of Mary. This is a big insult. Like this is where someone would put their foot down and someone would give the Wild West whistle the... Something and you'd hear tumbleweed. Those are fighting words. This is an aggressive thing. They're questioning the legitimacy of Jesus' birth. You wouldn't address someone by the the name you are the son of, and then your mother's name. You'd you'd address them as the son of their father. That's how the culture functioned and worked. It's Simon Bar Jonah, the son of Jonah. It's Jesus, the son of Joseph. But no, not to these people. They're taking a crack at Jesus. And, and, and Joseph doesn't seem to be around in the page of Scripture. We don't know if that's because Joseph had left or Joseph had died or maybe Joseph was present and just never mentioned. We don't really know. But when a moment like this happens, what commentators and historians tell us is that this was an aggressive thing where they're making a statement, oh, you bastard, what do you know? We're e- you're easy to dismiss because we, we, we don't even believe you or your mom about the whole story of your birth. What they're doing is they're ridiculing him and his mom. I mean, picture the scene. Things shift so quickly. What began as seemingly this lighthearted gathering with an excited audience of familiar faces has quickly morphed into them having a good laugh at Jesus' expense. And then, in a moment's notice, it takes a turn for the worse when Jesus tells them that God showed mercy to Gentiles and he'll do it again because they have faith and you're missing out on God's plan of salvation and now they're out for blood. That's where we draw the line, Jesus. Who do you think you are? All because they thought that they knew him. Jesus was welcomed with open arms until he arrived at the place that was convinced they knew him, they had him figured out, and that's the city that chose to just instead push him out. And think of the irony. In our story, Jesus offends the culture most familiar with him. Okay, now shift gears with me. I think it can be easy for us to read scriptures and to to take the place in the story of the hero or sometimes of the victim, but I think rarely, if ever, do we really slow down to take the place in a story of the one who's identified more as a villain. I'm the victim. I'm comfortable being the victim because it's, I see myself in a story and I can say, oh, poor me. The, the world's out to get me. I'm misunderstood. I'm underappreciated. I can, I can find my place in that character in the story. Or maybe the hero that, that, that we can read it and be like, man, just like these people, they're, they're so lucky to have me. 
They need to just step back and and, and let me jump in like Jesus does in the story. And I've got the answers that they need, the solution that they're waiting for. I can jump in and rescue them. And I convince myself that when I see Jesus in the story, that that's the position that I take. Oh, I'm like Jesus. I, I, I find when I'm looking at Jesus, I see myself in the story. And I think that's a dangerous thing. Rarely, if ever, do I see myself as the villain or even the one who's in need of Jesus' grace and rescue and touch. But that's the position I'm meant to find myself in. That's the precise position that I fit in. It's precisely the person that I am in the narratives that the Bible presents. I'm the one that needs healing from Jesus. I'm the one in over my head needing a rescue from Jesus. But I'm also the one who turns on Jesus when my plan and his plan no longer seem to walk in step. I'm not just in the multitude that flocked to Jesus needed to be touched and healed. Unfortunately, I'm also present on the day in the crowd that chanted crucify, crucify when following him didn't remove all of the pain and the hardship, the hurt and the disappointment that I was facing. I joined their cry in that moment. So where in this story are we meant to find ourselves? I want to give you three things just to consider, and and they're a little quirky, so bear with me. The first similarity I see here is that biblical literacy doesn't equate to seeing Jesus, much, much less truly knowing Jesus. That biblical literacy, or even just being churchy, doesn't equate to seeing Jesus, much less truly knowing Jesus. Jesus quotes them from a very familiar prophet. And although they may have known this specific prophecy even, they failed to see, they even refused to see who the prophet was pointing to. I think sometimes for us as as New Testament saints, we have to remember that really this book functions like a photo mosaic. You have all of these little stories, all of these little moments, all of these little pictures that all come together to paint a singular portrait, a singular picture. That's what they're doing. And the picture that it's painting, the whole of the book, each interconnected story is advancing a single plot line and presenting a single portrait of God's persistent love for all of creation. This book doesn't, when you leave the garden where everything goes terribly wrong, it doesn't follow mankind's attempt to reach back to be reconciled with God so much as it will follow and unfold the promise of God from the garden to remedy what we've done wrong which it then unveils that promise, while it's doing that, it will simultaneously give you glimpses and foreshadows into how God will remedy things, glimpses and foreshadows even into who that Savior will be who comes to remedy things, which tells me that the book from beginning to end, from cover to cover, is all about Jesus. It's really, the book is, it's about God and his promise to redeem and restore creation. That's how the book starts, and that's how the book even finishes up. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. So the book, from start to finish, is all about Jesus. The Old Testament's about anticipation. The New Testament's about manifestation of that promise, of Messiah. The book of Acts is is about the proclamation of Jesus. The, The epistles is the explanation of what Jesus has accomplished. And then Revelation is the consummation of all that Jesus has done. Now get nerdy with me for a minute. Jesus would come and say, you search the scriptures because you believe that in them you have life. But they speak of me. He's talking to a bunch of religious leaders who are very well acquainted with the scriptures, who had a great knowledge and grasp on on what the story was telling them, but they were missing the main portrait that all of those little pictures and stories and moments, those little vignettes were all collectively together painting the picture of just a person of God among us, of Jesus. And so Jesus presents for us that it's possible for us to miss the fact that all of the scripture is all about him. The Apostle Paul then, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's worth reading later on for you, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he starts talking to the the readers in Corinth about uh, Jewish history saying, the, the whole of the nation was there in the wilderness and all of them drank from the rock. All of them ate from the manna that God gave and partook of the quail that he provided. All of them received of his grace, but not all of them really had this deep connection with him where they moved forward in faith. But what he says in 1 Corinthians 10 is he says all of them drank from the rock and that rock was Christ. 
It's this really weird moment that maybe you haven't caught before where he makes the statement that the rock that, that Moses would speak to and water would come out to preserve the lives of the whole nation. He says that rock was Christ. Then you flip back in your Bible to the Old Testament. You reread it. And, and, and as you read it, you go, there's no mention here of Jesus. Like what Paul, I, I feel like you got your stories mixed up a little bit because Jesus isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. And how would that rock have been Jesus? But what he does here is it's not that Paul is taking a liberty and reading Jesus into the Old Testament story. No, what Paul is doing is he read and understood the scriptures as displaying Jesus through the Old Testament stories. He wasn't reading something into it that wasn't there. He was realizing that there's imagery and allegory happening. This is a real life situation, but it becomes a picture and a foreshadow of what Jesus would come and be for all of us. The rock that would give us living water. And we ought to do the same when we're looking at the book. We ought to be looking for Jesus because he is the rock. Because he's the branch that was cast into the bitter waters at Mara and made them sweet. What a picture of the cross. Because he's the manna that comes down from heaven. Our sustenance, heaven's provision coming down to give us life. He's the cloud that traveled by day, the pillar of fire by night. The provision and, and protection and guidance that heaven gives us. He is our Joshua, leading us into the promised land, taking us through our battles. He is our Moses, delivering us from slavery to sin, from our evil taskmaster. He became himself the 10th plague who provided a covering so that judgment, the judgment of God would pass over us because of the covering of blood over top of us. He became our ark. Not just in scripture are we told that Christ is in us, but it says that we are now in Christ. So when God looks our direction, he sees Jesus. You don't see what I had for breakfast because it's in Trevor. When you look for that breakfast sandwich, you don't see it. You see Trevor. Oh, but it's here and it might stick around for longer than I'd like. But, but think of this. We are in Christ. When God looks our direction, he does not see us in our unrighteousness any longer. He sees Christ in his perfection because I'm hidden there with him. If you rewind even further still, in the narrative of Genesis, right before that arc moment, there's this genealogy that's given. It's so confusing because as the book starts in the first two chapters, there's a five-word summary of God making the stars also. He made the stars also. Five words to explain all the vast beauty within creation summed up so simply and yet you get a whole chapter by the, the time you get to chapter five in the book of Genesis that's just a genealogy. And why? Wouldn't we rather have the information of, well, tell us about what's out there. Tell us about why it's there. Tell us about how you made it. But instead, you get a chapter-long genealogy. And it's because the book is not about science or stars. It's about salvation and a plan of salvation that wanted to be made clear right from the beginning of the book. And so in Genesis 5, Miss Ruth will throw it up on the screen for you. This genealogy is given with a bunch of names, and hopefully it'll pop up for you. But names that, that span an entire chapter, beginning with Adam, where it says, and Adam... Uh, is the first man, and Adam's name literally means man. And then Seth, it means appointed, and Enosh means mortal. Canaan means sorrow. Mahalel means blessed God. Jared means came down. Enoch, teaching. Methuselah, his death shall bring. Lamech means despairing, and then Noah's name means comfort. Why the genealogy? Well, because when you mash them up together, think of what the message is by the fifth chapter in Genesis. Skip to the next one, Miss Ruth, if you please. Think of the names together in Hebrew. Man was appointed moral sorrow. The blessed God, he comes down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort. In the Hebrew language, the, the list of names in the genealogy literally spells out the gospel. Man appointed moral sorrow. But the blessed God comes down teaching us that his death shall bring the despairing comfort. Listen, the book is all about Jesus from beginning to end in every little detail, even the simple things like a genealogy. And so there's a moment in time I think that the story just speaks to us and says, listen, your biblical literacy doesn't equate to seeing Jesus, much less truly knowing him, because Jesus had warned those who are so familiar with the book but missing him that you think that in the scriptures you have life, but they all point to me. Listen, our goal as Jesus followers is not merely to know his book. It's to know him and become like him. And a deep understanding of scripture does not necessarily naturally equate to a deep connection with Jesus. I have a little note next to my uh, computer at home in my office, and it just says this. It's a great reminder for me. 
It says, having a deep passion for the church and for ministry doesn't necessarily translate into a passion for Jesus and certainly does not translate into intimacy with him. The story, I think, tells us biblical literacy. It doesn't always equate to seeing Jesus, much less truly knowing him. Here's the second thing. The second thing is that a cultural exposure to Jesus doesn't equate to truly knowing Jesus. Think of it. The cultural exposure to Jesus that happened here did not equate to truly knowing him. And Nazareth, they're incensed by the fact that Jesus is claiming authority that they did not give him, nor did they agree to it. That's probably how they would have said it. They would have said, Jesus, you're claiming authority we didn't give you, and we by no means have agreed to that. You see, the problem was when Jesus took the kind of authority that he did in saying, I am heaven sent a deliverer for you. I am Messiah. I am heaven's help sent to us. When he was saying he's Messiah, what he's also saying is that he has authority to say to the people that you're wrong. If that's who he is, the one coming from heaven, then he can speak on authority with the authority of heaven saying you're wrong and you're going to be held accountable by heaven for your choices. That's what they took exception to. Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh, Jesus. You can't tell us that's who you are because that means you're allowed to tell us where we're wrong, which is what he did when he said, God will show mercy even to these Gentiles that you discard because you're hardening your heart to his provision in your life. That's what they took exception to. It wasn't just how dare you claim to be something special. It was how dare you expect us to yield to what you say. In verse 3, they were offended because of him. They stumbled over him. It tripped them out. It tripped them up. In Greek, it's the word scandalon. It's from where we get our English word to scandalize or a scandal. Dr. Weiss, a Greek linguist, he says that they don't Uh, They could not explain Jesus, and because of that, they just reject him. They do not know the place that they, they put Jesus, so they just discard him. They're profoundly offended by him. It's interesting that that Greek word scandalon was actually used uh, in referencing someone who's building a stone building, and it's speaking of this stone that the builder would reject. When the builders were selecting stones, they're looking to see if they're of good quality, if they're not cracked, if their strength is good. And if they rejected a stone saying this one's got cracks or imperfections, if they threw it aside, it was called the scandalon. And that's what it says here about how they felt. They discarded him as one that wasn't good, of good quality or strength. It's interesting because of something the psalmist wrote, though. Hundreds of years before Jesus arrived on the scene, Psalm 118 would say it this way. The stone which the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The scandalon that was rejected would become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. The cornerstone was the first stone that would be set on the building and everything else would be measured off it. Everything else would be set around it in order to ensure a proper fit. It had to be set first. And in Mark 12, Jesus will take this same wording here and say, using the wording, quoting from this psalm, saying, I am that rejected stone that was the scandal on that you wanted nothing to do with. And the book of Acts, Peter will stand up to the religious leaders and say, you are guilty of being the ones who rejected the chief cornerstone. The only thing that's going to make this world work, the only thing we'll ever build that will last has to be built off of Jesus. The only solution we have even for brokenness in our own community or country will only be built around the chief cornerstone of Jesus. But they reject him. Because he didn't come in the way that they had hoped. They thought he'd come in a palace. Instead, he came with humility and in obscurity because he didn't share the agenda that they had to rid their lives of all of their problems. And their main one was their oppressors. It was the Roman Empire. Listen, if he really says he is or if he is who he says he is, then he'd share our agenda and he'd fix these problems and he'd do what I want him to do. He'd do what I need him to do was their attitude. There's only one other option, and that was to yield to him as the prince of heaven with heaven's authority. But instead, they were offended. And for us, we have to stop and go, well, where am I in the story? Am I the one who's offended? Am I taking issue with him? Because I can begin to look and sound a lot like these people when things don't go the way that I had hoped or dreamed or planned, that I can look his direction and say, there's something wrong with you. The scandal is you. Maybe you're not the one I should be trusting. 
it's very possible for us to have our unmet expectations be projected onto God as a lack of power or authority or even of care. And that I too can find myself in those moments offended by Jesus and ready to bail. You see, a cultural experience to Jesus doesn't equate to truly knowing Jesus. Now, you need to be gracious with me so I'm not getting tied up and pushed backwards later. Um, Because I want to draw a parallel even between Nazareth and our own country. And I love our country. I'm so thankful to live here and to raise a family here. But, But we are the country in the world who does pretty uniquely refer to ourselves as a Christian country or at least a country founded on Christian ideals. And yet Jesus offends this culture that is so very familiar with him. Our own country and culture. He is terribly offensive to our Christian country because Jesus claims exclusivity in what's now turned into a new era of complete and total relativity. He, he pro- pronounces himself with exclusivity. You remember saying, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Outside of, apart from Jesus, there's no covering or pardon for sin or for the punishment and justice of God that, that needs to come our direction. But our Christian country and culture has It's self-proclaimed evolved beyond that kind of exclusivity into just a moral relativism where there's no more moral absolutes where I can't say no one can say, Jesus, you're a scandal. We reject you because you have said what's right and wrong. You have given moral absolutes and a standard. And we no longer think that way because we've evolved beyond that because there is no more moral absolutes. And some of you might be thinking like, well, little bald guy, like, take it easy, take a deep breath. It's really not that bad. (laughs) Do you remember just a handful of years ago when when the term post-truth was getting thrown around a lot? In fact, in 2016, Oxford Dictionaries declared it the word of the year, post-truth. Previous years, their UK and US teams had basically put words into the dictionary each year, words like unfriend, because that's such a new concept, or carbon neutral was added to a dictionary. But the word of the year, post-truth, was awarded word of the year because of the new era that, that both the US and the UK had found themselves already actively living in, where, and I quote, objective facts are less influential than appeals to how someone feels about something. Their emotion now matters more. We live in a post-truth culture And unfortunately, that post-truth culture leaves its fingerprints all over even the church itself. Because we can sit here and throw stones outside of the church, but we're wrong in doing so because the church itself is yielding to to a progressive movement. We're sure we take the Bible seriously, but I mean, we don't really want to take it literally because we've emerged beyond that point. Where, Where we are quick to affirm God's image in every person And because of that, they have intrinsic value, which is what the Bible does teach us. But it also teaches us a secondary secondary truth that is equally true. And that's that each of us have a broken, sinful, fallen nature that works in wars within that beauty of intrinsic value made in the image of God. Broken, marred, sinful, fallen nature coexists within me. Although they'll affirm the one, they dismiss the other and won't call it sin any longer. We've evolved as a culture beyond the point of calling someone's sex life or sexual expression a moral issue anymore. It's not a sin or rebellion issue. It's a freedom of expression. And the idea of safe sex is a misnomer. God did not make sex to be safe. The main thing that the Bible says about sex is how powerful it is. In fact, it's the thing that fuses two people together, the two become one flesh, not through a wedding vow. First Corinthians, Paul opens that up to say it's through a sexual expression and encounter together, that that's how two are fused together as one. Listen, our post-truth culture has said that to refuse to affirm someone's lifestyle choices is to be intolerant. And, and, and that intolerance is the opposite of love. You hate that person. Intolerance, if intolerance is me refusing to tell someone, I, I affirm your decision to live however you want because everything is relative. If, if that is intolerance, intolerance is not the opposite of love. Indifference is. If I am indifferent to someone, yeah, make your choices. I think you'll stand before God and be judged because that is what Jesus says. But I'm indifferent to you. And yeah, make your choices, live your life. I'm not going to get in the way. I'm not going to say anything. There's no love in that. There's love. And, and being willing to stand for truth and say, but Jesus has shown up, revealed himself, 
and you are rejecting him like these people did, and he's saying mercy will pass over you and land somewhere else then. Listen, I'm not going to argue with anyone about whether or not they are born a certain way or have natural inclinations or attractions to things that God says are broken. I'm not going to argue with them. I'm going to affirm them and say that's step one in what Jesus taught us, that we have a broken, sinful, fallen nature, so I shouldn't be surprised when I'm drawn to things that God says are wrong. And when we see that that's true in someone's life, we say, but there's great news. It's not just that you're far worse than you'd ever imagined. It's that you are also far more loved than you had ever hoped and dreamed because Jesus bled and died for you, even though you and I are that broken. That is the gospel, that we need to be born again. You see, a cultural exposure to Jesus does not equate to truly knowing him. Like theirs, our culture has been exposed to Jesus, and yet all it's done is expose our own brokenness because we refuse to yield to him. Okay, one last thing very, very quickly. Is that proximity to Jesus doesn't equate truly knowing him. Real quick, I'll just land the plane with this. Proximity to Jesus doesn't equate to truly knowing him. In Nazareth, they'd speak up and say, he was my neighbor for more than a decade. And for some of us, we'd say, hey, I've grown up in a Christian family who prayed to Jesus, who talked about Jesus, who took me to church to learn about Jesus. It's possible that because of your familiarity with Jesus, though, he just becomes ordinary and familiar to. Maybe Jesus isn't wonderful in your eyes anymore, like maybe he once was. Or from your perspective, he's, he's not that great because you, you don't really know him. And you'd say, but I grew up here. But that didn't help them. But Trevor, I know all the stories. But that doesn't mean that you truly know him. In fact, how many of you grew up in the church? I did. How many of you, one more time, look around, everyone. It's the majority of us. I think it's easy for us to think we figured Jesus out, but sometimes we have to be willing to have the humility to step back and look. Because sometimes when we step back and look, we realize that Jesus looks a lot more like me than I look like Jesus. That the longer I walk with Jesus, the more that I morph my thinking of who he is into an image that looks a lot like me. History d- does this. Isn't it interesting? Have you ever looked at paintings of Jesus? Like, wow, Anglo-Saxon Jesus. He's blonde and looks like Fabio. And then different eras, different cultures have a different version of Jesus. Everyone makes Jesus look like them because we're comfortable with that. What we have a tendency of doing is not just painting portraits of Jesus, but even shaping the heart of Jesus to look like ours. We know that we're guilty of it. We know that it's happening when Jesus no longer surprises us and no longer offends us. If he doesn't surprise you and offend you anymore, then it's quite possible that your familiarity with him has made it so that you have naturally crafted and shaped Jesus to look a lot like you because you're comfortable there. Can I challenge you? Choose to see Jesus with fresh eyes and let Jesus surprise and amaze you and even find the areas where he might offend you and what's natural to you or what your natural inclinations are or your natural bent may be because he said those things would be present and we had to be reborn because of it. Don't let the gospel message lose its power in your life because for some of us who grew up in church, a part of our testimony is that we thought we knew him and it kept us from actually knowing him. You see, this this extraordinary thing, this person, this message became ordinary. And that's how they thought of Jesus. Familiarity breeds contempt. It's actually a, stain that, a saying that predates Jesus. It was first written by a guy in 2 BC. It's something that, that has traveled well over all those years that we still know and understand because we understand how it works. But we have to slow down sometimes and remember, what was it like when I first understood the grace of Jesus? When I first realized what that grace meant for me. What was it like when I, when I first came to understand that God doesn't keep score like everyone else. He keeps promises. What was it like when I first understood that Jesus cried out from a cross asking, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that I would hear his promise? I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is not any less amazing than he ever has been before. He's no less impressive than when you first heard and believed in him. And maybe you and I just need to slow down and remember that. 
Because life, trials, pain, disappointments, hurt, and unmet expectations have a both, both a way of revealing our unfair expectations, but they also have a way of undermining our simple faith in the goodness of God. In our story, Jesus is dumbfounded. He's dumbfounded, it says. That's one of the translations. By their unbelief. When those who knew him best seemed to trust him least of every place he went. They decided he wasn't worth trusting. He wasn't worth forsaking all to follow. Jesus didn't just marvel at their unbelief. He left because of it. It's one of the saddest sentences in scripture because when Jesus left, hope left. When Jesus left, healing departed. When Jesus left, peace would be no more. When Jesus left, forgiveness, it left. Fulfillment, it left. Love, it left. They wouldn't receive him. And as a gentleman, he wouldn't force himself on them, so he departed. I think it's possible that there's a lot of pain in Jesus' voice when he uttered those words that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and amongst his own family. It's possible there was real pain and a tremble to his voice. Jesus hurt in so, so many ways. Scripture belabors that point, not just that he was tempted in all points as we are, but he also suffered like we do. He fully embraced the human experience. He wouldn't isolate himself or insulate himself from any of its pains and shortcomings. And we don't know what was worst of all for him. The physical agony on a cross or or the betrayal of a close friend, the, the denial and abandonment by the, by the whole of the gang in his hour of greatest need, or maybe even just the simple rejection we see here, the embarrassment his own community expressed and displayed towards him. We have so many hurts in our own lives that we have to stop and remember Jesus understands those things. We're not alone in those things. But think about the early church who read this first who were choosing to follow Jesus and losing their businesses. They'd lost all respect and credibility in their communities. They were being disowned by their families. And then they were being rounded up and arrested and taken and killed. The story for people living in a culture like that, very afraid, must have comforted them because Jesus would ask nothing of them that he would not first endure himself for them. And the same is true for us. Be comforted, comforted that he knows and cares. He understands and can help. And ultimately, he paved the way, blazed a trail, endured it and more for you. You see, I think this little story used by Mark to point ahead is used by Mark to point ahead to the culmination of the whole of the story of the gospel, where Jesus will once again enter a city which he should have thought as Messiah as home, Jerusalem where he would enter a place, the temple, and the people surrounding it as a place that should have felt like his family. But again, once again, he'd be rejected. And he would both face and endure that rejection because of love for us and his determination to rescue us. 